O God, make speed to save me. O Lord, make haste to help me, to help me, to help me, to help me. O God, make speed to save me. O Lord, make haste to help me, to help me, to help me. Hi, I'm Derek Olson, creator of St. Bede Productions. I'm an Episcopal layman with a Ph.D. in New Testament and a passion for the intersection of liturgy and scripture. Welcome to episode 11 of the St. Bede Psalmcast, a podcast about the Psalms and the Revised Common Lectionary, reading them in the context of the Sunday service and alongside the Church Fathers. Today, we'll be talking about Psalm 30, the psalm appointed for option 2 of proper 5 of year C, which this year falls on June 5th, 2016. I'll be reading the psalm from the uh, edition found in the Book of Common Prayer, Feel free to read along in whatever version you prefer. I will exalt you, O Lord, because you have lifted me up, and have not let my enemies triumph over me. O Lord my God, I cried out to you, and you restored me to health. You brought me up, O Lord, from the dead. You restored my life as I was going down to the grave. Sing to the Lord, you servants of his. Give thanks for the remembrance of his holiness. For his wrath endures but the twinkling of an eye, his favor for a lifetime. Weeping may spend the night, but joy comes in the morning. While I felt secure, I said, I shall never be disturbed. You, Lord, with your favor, made me as strong as the mountains. Then you hid your face, and I was filled with fear. I cried to you, O Lord. I pleaded with the Lord, saying, What profit is there in my blood if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you, or declare your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and have mercy upon me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned my wailing into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. Therefore my heart sings to you without ceasing. O Lord, my God, I will give you thanks forever. So, why is this psalm appointed here for this day? Okay, before we even get to that, we need to talk about the words that came out of my mouth when I was identifying how this psalm was appointed. I said that this was the psalm appointed for option two of proper five of year C. Now, unless you're a priest or someone who does bulletins, chances are not all of those words made sense together. So let's go through them. We'll start from the end and work our way back, since that'll be the easiest way to do it. Year C. Uh, we're working here with the Revised Common Lectionary, which is a three-year lectionary, meaning that the readings repeat every three years in a pattern. This is a change from our historical practice writ large. We used to only have a one-year lectionary in which we would read the same readings every year. However, with the Second Vatican Council, the Roman Catholic Church thought it might be a good idea to introduce more scripture so that people who only attended church on Sundays would get a broader scope of the scriptures. Not a bad idea, and the mainline Protestant churches agreed, and put together first the Common Lectionary, which was then revised, to become the Revised Common Lectionary. So, there are three years identified by letter, A, B, and C. The central difference between these years is in which gospel takes primary focus. They do this by moving in canonical order, so year A reads Matthew, year B reads Mark, and year C reads Luke, 
and John gets kind of sprinkled in, particularly at feasts and festivals and such. So, this is year C, so we're reading through Luke right now. Then we've got proper five. So, liturgically speaking, we've now moved out of the Easter season and have entered the season after Pentecost. So, this Sunday that we're talking about could be referred to as the third Sunday after Pentecost. Alternatively, the Old Anglican preference was to count the Sundays after the Feast of the Holy Trinity, one week after Pentecost, in which this would be the second Sunday after Trinity. For lectionary purposes, though, we refer to it as proper five. Liturgically speaking, a proper is a set of readings and prayers that get used for a particular occasion. Hence, we'll talk about the propers for a feast. And when we do that, we're referring to the readings, the collect, and a special preface, if there is one. So, this just means that we're dealing with set number five of readings and prayers. Now, the whole proper system is tied to specific calendar dates in order to minimize the effect of a moving Easter upon the whole system of readings. Here's the thing. The third Sunday after Pentecost could fall anywhere between, say, June 1st and the beginning of July. There's almost a month worth of variation there. And then all of the other Sundays would be pushed down the line through the rest of the summer and the fall until we finally get to Advent at the end of November and start of December, which is, which is more stable. Rather than doing it that way, with the proper system, the bundle of readings and prayers that we call Proper Five is tied to whatever Sunday happens to fall closest to June 8th. This way, it doesn't matter when Easter falls, whether it's early or late. Instead, all the reading, instead of all the post-Pentecost period readings shifting around, they stay pretty stably fixed, so you know that the same readings are going to fall around the same time every three years, no matter what Easter is up to. All right, then we get to the options. During the season after Pentecost, and only in the season after Pentecost, do we have two different options or tracks. Here's how this works. When the Revised Common Lectionary was put together, the framers decided that it would be good to read through sections of different Old Testament books based or related to the Gospel of the Year. Thus, in year A, when we read Matthew, which is the most rabbinic of the Gospels, the appointed Old Testament readings are from the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. Because Mark in year B is a history of sorts, they appointed the historical books, so we read a lot of the story of David and such then. Year C and Luke is paired with the prophets, because of Luke's focus on social justice themes. And that seemed like one way to do it if you were going to adopt the principle of readings in course. However, that's never been the way that Roman Catholics and Episcopalians ever selected their scriptures for Eucharist. This sort of reading in course scheme is what we tend to use for the daily office, for the scriptures that we read during morning and evening prayer. For Eucharist, we prefer to select readings that shed light on the gospel and that demonstrate patterns and connections that show how the gospel events are in continuity with and are a continuation of ways that God has always related to humanity. That the gospel is fundamentally in continuity with how God and humanity have always related to one another. So, the Revised Common Lectionary has two options, or tracks, during the post-Pentecost season. Track 1 
is a sequential reading series that moves through Old Testament books that are loosely linked to the theme of the Gospel for each year. Track 2 is a typological reading series that continues to connect the Old Testament readings with the Gospel lesson. Lastly, the selection of the psalm for each Sunday tends to fall along with the Old Testament reading. Thus, in track 1, the psalm follows the Old Testament reading and is more closely connected to its contents rather than the Gospel. In track 2, it follows the Old Testament reading and is directly applicable to the Gospel in the same kind of way that it is through the rest of the year. Uh, you might ask, why is it that we're opting to go with track 2 instead of track 1? Well, first, because this is the Episcopal slash Roman Catholic method, and, and that's the perspective that this podcast takes, Second of all, that's the track that my wife's church is using, and, and so I'm just staying in sync with the community that I'm connected to. Okay, all of that having been said, what are we dealing with lectionary-wise this week? The Gospel is Luke seven eleven to 17 which is the raising of the widow's son at Nain. Accordingly, the Old Testament reading is 1 Kings 17, 17-24, which depicts Elijah raising the widow's son at Zarephath. The psalm relates here and gives us a look into both of these texts. Our epistle from Galatians isn't connected to any of this and, and is the second section of a reading in course through Galatians that we're going to be in for a while. So, the bottom line for the lectionary is that we hear this psalm within the context of two widow's sons being raised up from death. Now, is there other information we need to help us understand what's going on? In terms of structure and content, this is a thanksgiving psalm. We start with a call to praise. We have a call to the congregation to join in the praise along with the psalmist. We have a description of the situation, and we conclude with a restatement of the call to praise. As far as thanksgivings from illness go, this is the kind of thanksgiving hymn that we see across the ancient Near East. In fact, there's a memorial stella from the 19th dynasty in Egypt, so that's the 13th century BC, the, the time of the, the Ramses, is, uh, that sounds a lot like what we have in Psalm 30. It's a prayer from the draftsman Nebre, sung to the Egyptian god Amun-Re for the recovery of Nebre's son Nakhdamon. Uh, we have the idea of healing, we have an image of the god who draws the sick soul back up from the underworld, uh, it, it touches on the change from the wrath of God to his more usual state of mercy. Here's a taste of, of this particular Egyptian hymn as it appears in Kelly Simpson's book, The Literature of Ancient Egypt. Quote, Giving praise to Amun, I make to him adorations in his name. I give him praises to the height of the sky, to the breadth of the earth. I declare the greatness of his power to the one traveling north and to the one traveling south. Beware of him. Herald him to son and daughter, to those junior and senior. Declare him to generations now and generations still yet to come. Declare him to fish in the deep, to fowl in the sky. Herald him to him who knows him not, and him who knows him. Beware of him. You are Amun, the Lord of the Silent One, who comes at the plea of the lowly one. I called out to you when I was distressed, and you came and rescued me. You give breath to him who is weak. You rescue him who is in dire straits. You are Amun-Re, Lord of Thebes, who rescues him who is in the abyss. For you are the one who is merciful when you are called upon, 
you are the one who comes from afar, end quote. And then uh, jumping down a little further, quote, Just as a servant is wont to commit sin, so the Lord is wont to forgive. The Lord of Thebes does not spend a whole day being angry. If he becomes angry, in an instant it no longer lasts. The wind has turned around for us in mercy. Amun has returned with his breeze. As your ka endures, you will be gracious. End quote. So, you can see the same kind of language that shows up in this Egyptian Thanksgiving hymn uh, and what we find in our psalm. We're dealing with some universal aspects of human experience here. There's a fear of divine anger, real concern that sickness and a turn for the worse is punishment for something, and then an expression of thanks when things don't turn out the way they could have. But even beyond the language and imagery, we see a parent's relief at the saving of a child. And, and I think that's our real connection here and how we fit our psalm together with the gospel. To touch on one more thing very quickly, Sheol and the pit, uh, which is what we see in the Hebrew, uh, the BCP's translation renders that grave in the first part. Sheol and the pit are synonyms in Hebrew poetry and thought. Sheol is the place of the dead. Don't think of it like hell. It's not. There's no sense of punishment here. It's just a big, dusty place that everybody goes. So, the Egyptian underworld is a big, colorful place, with lots of action and courts and activities and gods doing all sorts of stuff. It's not that either. The Hebrew concept of Sheol sounds a lot more like the kind of underworld we see described in the Babylonian and Akkadian texts, like in the Epic of Gilgamesh, where it's just kind of dusty and mopey and boring. Nothing really happens in the house of the dust. It's not a place to look forward to. Since we're not the first Christians to read the Psalms, what insights have others found within this text before we came along? Cassiodora sees this as a psalm sung by Christ and relating to the Passion and Resurrection. And it's not hard to see where he's coming from on that one. Certainly the idea of return from the dead draws a pretty clear line from our psalm to Jesus. I also want to note that this connection has something to do with the psalm's placement as well. When we speak of psalms of the Passion, that can mean two different things. On one hand, there are certain psalms that are considered to be particularly relevant to the Passion of Christ. Um, there are a couple of different lists that include things like uh, Psalm 22, Psalm 69, and some others. This psalm is not on any of them. Rather, those are collections of discrete psalms that apply to the Passion in specific ways, and we'll talk about that grouping at, at some other point. The other way of reckoning the Psalms of the Passion is more common in late medieval sources. You sometimes see this in the Books of Hours and in the Primers, and that method of reckoning them is based on an interpretive move grounded in the text of the Gospels. As you know, the Passion of Christ and its events are described with some minor variations from one Gospel to another, and one of the Church's strategies for understanding this was to harmonize them, and that's how we get this reckoning. In the Gospels of both Matthew and Mark, the last words of Jesus are the cry from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And clearly, we're dealing here with a quotation from the first verse of Psalm 22. However, 
the Gospel of Luke gives something different for the last words of Jesus. Into your hands I commend my spirit. And clearly, we're dealing here with a quotation of the fifth verse of Psalm 31. So, one of the ways that the church interpreted the difference here was to identify that whole stretch from the start of Psalm 22 up through Psalm 31 verse 5 as the words of Christ on the cross. Matthew and Mark recorded the start of it, while Luke recorded the ending of it. So, certainly, if you reckon it that way, then Psalm 30 is the last complete psalm in that lineup and has some clear applicability to both the Passion and the Resurrection. And, therefore, it's not a surprise that in the Roman liturgy before the mid-20th century changes, this was one of the psalms appointed for Matins on Holy Saturday. And, sure enough, the prayer book includes it in the Vigil of Easter as our song response to the song, the, sorry, from the reading from Ezekiel's Valley of the Dry Bones. How do we read this song on this day? Picking up on that notion of the human experience of relief at a child's restoration that we find in the parallel Egyptian hymn, and then considering how this psalm is positioned in relation to the Old Testament and the Gospel readings, an obvious move is to ask whose mouth we hear this psalm in. Is it in the voice of the son who was raised? or in the voice of the mother to whom her son has been restored, or even some overtones in the mouth of Jesus himself, as he contemplates how his earthly action of healing relates to the fundamental mission of revealing God and God's will and God's love to humanity. For me, it's, it's a both-and, but I hear the voice of the mother predominating myself. Also, I think we have to spend at least a little bit of time today talking about the connection between the wrath of God and sickness, or, or even calamities more broadly drawn. This psalm never comes out and says that sickness is God's punishment on the psalmist, but I think that it's strongly implied. The converse, then, is that the restoration of the psalmist is a restoration of God's favor. And I just have to say that this is not a theology that resonates well with me on either count. First, does God punish us by sending sickness and calamities on us? Or conversely, is sickness and calamity a sign of God's punishment or disapproval? Certainly, that's how the Egyptian scribe understood it. And I suspect it's probably also the way the psalmist understood it. But I'm going to say that scripture says no. Well, Actually, Scripture says quite a number of things on the subject, not all of which agree. But the chief and dominant note that I hear is no. In fact, this is the entire point of the book of Job. Calamity happens to Job, but it's not his fault. He didn't do anything to deserve it. That entire book is wrestling with the standard wisdom attitude that said that if something bad happened to you, you must have sinned in order to cause it. This is the whole argument of Job's friends. Something bad happened, so confess your sin. Job, on the other hand, is, is pissed because he hasn't sinned. He doesn't feel he deserves this treatment. The end result in God's great whirlwind speech is a flat-out recognition that Job and his friends are fundamentally incapable of grasping the mind of God and the design of the universe. These things don't follow the silly little rules that Job and his friends have come up with. Instead, the universe is a grand and beautiful and scary place, and chaos is part of the system. 
your moral rectitude or failings, don't determine the chaos quotient of the universe. I mean, sure, in a human society that's built on notions of retribution, yes, if you mess with somebody, their family is going to get revenge. And in that sense, the wisdom literature is absolutely right. What goes around comes around. But the book of Job is wrestling with these bigger questions about whether God zaps us for specific things we do, and I think that Job is answering no. Furthermore, the whole New Testament also flies in the face of this notion. Jesus had all manner of bad things happen to him. The early church had all manner of bad things happen to it. These weren't because Jesus and the church were sinning and God felt the need to punish them. But this notion of sickness as punishment is really deeply ingrained in people. This is one of the things that my wife used to hear all the time in the hospital when she served as a chaplain. Why is this happening to me? What did I do to make God do this to me? But theologically, that's the wrong question. This isn't God zapping you. I mean, sometimes sickness is a consequence of what we've done to our bodies over a period of years, a pattern of bad behavior towards our system. But sometimes, it's just the chaos in the system expressing itself in our flesh. And furthermore, if you're not getting better, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love you or that God has abandoned you. Alright, so, if we come at it from that angle, what does this mean for how we read and hear this psalm? How do we read this psalm if sickness isn't about God zapping us, and restoral isn't about God unzapping us. First, I want to visit verses 4 through 6 for a moment. Quote, Sing to the Lord, you servants of his. Give thanks for the remembrance of his holiness. For his wrath endures but the twinkling of an eye, his favor for a lifetime. Weeping may spend the night, but joy comes in the morning. Unquote. The enduring character of God as revealed in Christ is mercy, favor, and goodness. As teachers throughout the long history of the church have, your, have reminded us, and even Cassiodorus among them, the wrath of God is a metaphor to describe an aspect of how humans sometimes experience life. But God, as God is, is beyond our human notions of emotion. God is not as fickle as we are. Yes, I think we can all relate to the experience of the universe crapping on us. And I think the metaphor connects with that feeling. But that's not who God is in his very nature. There will be rough parts, no question about it. But the steady state of our experience with God, apart from what the universe is doing around us, is a relationship of love and God searching us out, even if we're missing that or not feeling it. Second, I think the inner narrative of verses 7 through 11 is both fascinating and insightful, and I think we can learn a lot from them. In these verses, we're hearing the psalmist's own interior narrative about what's going on, and I think we find some really deep truths here. Quote, While I felt secure, I said, I shall never be disturbed. You, Lord, with your favor made me as strong as the mountains. Then you hid your face and I was filled with fear. I cried to you, O Lord. I pleaded with the Lord, saying, What profit is there in my blood if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you or declare your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and have mercy upon me. O Lord, be my helper. End quote. 
we're getting here a very human perspective on the human-divine relationship. And the passage starts out by naming the human tendency to idolatry. When everything is going well for us, we have a tendency to attribute it to ourselves, to our own efforts, to our own successes, and to name all sorts of gods for ourselves, to, to put our hope and trust in a lot of things that aren't ultimately God. But when things go wrong, the universe craps on us in some way, and we get a glimpse of where we really stand in relation to reality, then we get a sense of our own limitation, of our finitude, of our fundamental powerlessness in the face of what exists. And it's that point when we make the turn to God again. We've forgotten our calling. The calling of every human is the orientation of the soul towards God, of aligning our hopes and dreams within the hopes and dreams of God. And yet our tendency is to wander off from that, to orient ourselves towards whatever we think we want or need, and, and to break with reality, with what's really real and what's really valuable. And moments of crisis, like what we see in verse 8, reveal reality to us again and give us an opportunity to reorient ourselves. Again, I don't think that God causes these per se, but these are always opportunities for us to repent and to turn away from our own little games that we play with ourselves and with other people in order to turn back to God, to reorient the soul towards our true source and home. God is our good in whom we rest no matter what's going on around us, no matter how the universe is choosing to crap on us today. God is that still point at the center of reality that calls us to what is meaningful and true and enduring and of value. The principles of love, mercy, justice that we find in God teach us and remind us how we are intended to relate to one another and to everything else around us. So, God may not cause bad things, but bad things are always an opportunity for us to return to our source and to reorient ourselves towards God. Furthermore, restoral isn't something that happens once we've gotten right with God again. Rather, restoral is what God does. God is in the business of restoral and resurrection. God is constantly calling us to resurrection and to see and find resurrection in our lives and in the world around us. This isn't an action that God does occasionally. Rather, specifically as revealed in the person of Christ, this is God's character. This is who God is. Does this always mean that everything is going to be okay? No. Does this mean that everything is always going to get fixed? No. Does this mean that God doesn't care about us if things don't get fixed? No. What it does mean is that we are all part of God's drawing of all creation back to himself, and that we're in the midst of that, and that we're being called to reorient ourselves and to align ourselves with God's vision of a restored creation, where love, mercy, and justice aren't just key principles, but are our lived experience. So, that's what we have to say today about Psalm 30, as the psalm appointed for option 2 of proper 5 in year C of the Revised Common Lectionary. 
If you enjoyed today's show, please tell your friends about it and leave a review on iTunes. You can find more of my thoughts at www.stbeadproductions.com and follow me on Twitter. And there's a, a link you can follow on my blog and in the show notes. Until next time, I'm Derek Olson for St. Bede Productions. The path you must follow is in the Psalms. Never leave it. O oh God, make speed to save me. O oh Lord, make haste to help me, to help me, to help me, to help me. O oh God, make speed to save me. O oh Lord, make haste to help me, to help me, to help me.